You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to Our Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I am joined with Angie's husband, John. Hey, John, how are you? Hey, Chris, how's it going? I'm, I'm doing great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's good. It's good to, to chat with you. We've been planning this one for a while. And, you know, if you listen to the podcast long enough, you know, uh, Angie always refers to John. John, you know, in a zoo experience. And today we really kind of wanted to, you know, get a little bit more into the weeds on exactly what's going on behind the scenes at zoos, mm-hmm. you know, because when we're talking about conservation, the importance of zoos. I know Angie and I always talk about it, but it's mm-hmm. good to bring in an expert like yourself who's who's been out there fighting the good fight, trying to save these <laughs> species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're going to talk about it today. We're going to talk about species survival plans, stud books, how do we keep these animals uh, that we have under human care genetically diverse? I think that's a big mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. So, before we get going, John, if you can just give the listeners who have not heard you before or know much about you, your background, and then we'll go from there. How could they not know about me? Angie, <laughs> no, Angie speaks so much about all my Every background. week. <laughs> Every week. Uh, absolutely. I, I appreciate, I obviously appreciate the time to, to chat about this. Some of my absolute favorite topics uh, in zoos and aquariums we're going to talk about today. So I'm excited. So I appreciate the time. So my background, I I got a, a degree in biology, a bachelor's degree in biology from a small state college in Massachusetts, Framingham State College. And I volunteered at a zoo at the time, um, Franklin Park Zoo up in New England. So I volunteered there for about a year. But um, I didn't know what I want to do after I got my degree and I, I got a job in computers and I made a lot of money and I had, had uh, you know, a pretty good time, but I, I, I was pretty bored out of my mind and uh, I just didn't like being inside all the time. So my undergraduate professor, he called me up and asked if I would uh, help him with run a project at Bush Gardens. And so I helped him with a hippopotamus hearing threshold study at Bush Gardens. And that's... Um, Another long discussion for a different day, but I did a really cool project there. Uh, met some great people, met some great animals, worked with some great animals. So I was part-time project coordinator and part-time zookeeper. So I got my foot in the door there. I didn't really know what the field was before that point. So I worked there for about two years. And then from there, I kind of moved around. So I got a lot of experience at Bush Gardens with the fundamentals of zookeeping, worked hippos, lions, hyenas, rhinos, tigers, um, baboons, meerkats so a really good variety of species went to zoo atlanta worked there for a bunch of years started with hoofstock uh so giraffe uh thompson gazelle um i worked water buck i worked uh rhinos again then i moved around to primates to elephants panda uh lots of great stuff got some management experience uh, a lot of again a lot of great people a lot of great stuff there and um, then I moved up to uh, Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago and worked, again, hoofstock there. That's where I met the famous Angie. She was my boss at the time, right? So <laughs> when I moved up there, yeah. uh, she was first my boss. Uh, then I moved out of her area, out of hoofstock, and um, 
into the carnivore area. I worked a ton of carnivores up there as well as bears and seals. And then finally, again, um, a management position. Then finally, a position came open at uh, the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo. It's in Gainesville, Florida. And I, I took the position because it was a, a professor position and it was an assistant director position. And I took it over because I really wanted to help craft the next generation of zookeepers and teach them the ways that I had learned throughout my career. And so I thought it was a great opportunity to give back to the field in, in a different way. And so I moved down to Gainesville and um, I was there for about a year, here for about a year. And then I took over, the director retired and I took over as director. So I've been here since 2009 and I took over as director in 2010. So it's been uh, I don't know, 12 years, uh, 13 years. So uh, just a great, um, a great bunch of experiences. And again, this is kind of goes out to anybody out there who's thinking like, I'd like to do things. I'd like to get involved in animals and conservation work. There is something out there for you and you don't know what your future is going to hold. And so um, just kind of keep doing things and trying things and something's going to happen. And and we can all give back in our own ways. And, and some of the podcasts today, we'll talk maybe a little bit about that. Like, how can you give back if, you know, I don't want to be a zookeeper. I can't do that. There's other ways, um, absolutely, to give back. So uh, again, we we can talk about it, but just a a great fun fun um, job that I've had, and I've worked with tons of people that are fantastic and tons of animals. And yeah, I'm just I am just happy that I've been able to contribute and give back to animals, animal conservation, um, and preserving species, and that's really what it's all about. Yeah, I know it is. It is. It is. It's funny. It's, it's, it's just all of those episodes we Angie talking about John and whatever she gets to stump you because you, you gave the list of animals that you know about and she's always excited when I stumped them finally. And yeah, it's yeah, just I hilarious. get like, yeah, I get a text sometimes <laughs> in the middle of the day, like, what do you know about or have yeah. you ever worked with? Yeah. Or sometimes it's, you know, she at night or something like that. So yeah. It's, yeah, it's so funny. And, and, Sometimes, you know, I, I definitely, I phone a friend, right? I have yeah, other yeah, friends yeah, out there like, yeah. well, I haven't, but I think so-and-so has, and, yeah. you know, so sometimes that works. But yeah, it's just, it's just fun um, to be able to look back sometimes and think about, wow, we've, I've done a lot of stuff and I've done a lot of really cool things. But again, I've helped a lot of, now, again, my job is so cool. I have helped a lot of people fulfill their dreams and get into the industry and help, um, again, continue to help animals. And that's the coolest part. Yeah, I know. I know. That's what we love about education. And I guess that's what Angie and I are just so motivated each week uh, to, to talk about animals and talk to people like yourself in industry. So I just let me throw a big one at you first, and then we'll kind of break it down. But, you know, a lot of what we, we, we talk about is Angie and I both, you know, I've never, I mean, I've worked with you and I've worked with your, your, us doing research and behavioral research at your zoo. So I'm a big believer in zoos and because I've had a peek behind the scenes and I've seen what zoos do for conservation and how, you know, I always talk about San Diego zoo as a young kid and how it captured my imagination, drove my career forward where I'm working hard to help preserve our wildlife so, you know, and we had a whole podcast on this, you know, I think last year, a year and a half ago, where I asked you why zoos matter, but, you know, it's still in the press. They're just, they're, they're against zoos. They don't see the benefit. So can you talk about the role zoos play in animal conservation today? I mean, we're not talking what happened 40, 50 years ago. 
we're not talking about these little side zoos that aren't accredited, that have no role in conservation. You know, there's someone's personal backyard pets. We're talking about AZA or wherever you are in the world. You know, here I am in New Zealand, Australia, these accredited zoos that are, that are working hard. Can you kind of talk about what you're doing in the industry? Right. So, um, agreed. So that just for the record, everything we're talking about today is going to be AZA zoos or accredited zoos, because that's the world I live in. That's the world I believe in. Yes, I am biased. We are, we have accreditation for a reason. It means we're meeting the highest standards of the industry. And, um, and I happen to have that discussion with anybody that wants to have it, but that's, that's the way it is. And that's the way the discussion will be today. So, you know, what do we do as zoos for conservation? There's lots of different things that we do. Um, and I always tell people education is almost the number one, right? So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a small zoo, I'm a small AZA zoo, but I still bring people in to zoo grounds and our job is to educate the people that come in. One of my favorite stats about education in AZA zoos. So Chris, think about every, we just had a little tiny discussion about, uh, NFL games mm-hmm. right before this yeah. started, right? Yeah, think yeah. about every NFL game that's played. Think about every Major League Baseball game that's played, every NBA game that's played, and every hockey game, national um, hockey game that's played. And all the fans that see all of those games live, AZA Zoos attracts more people than all of those sports live games all Combined. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Tons of people come to us. So that's what we do is we get to educate all of them. We get to capture them. We get to inspire them. That is our job. So education, you and I, educators, that's that has to be the number one. But conservation is right after that. And conservation means lots of different things. And I am not shy to talk about what conservation is and what it is not. And we help conserve animals in the wild. We give money directly to the wild, to programs that are working with animals in the wild. That's conservation. We also breed animals. My zoo, we, my zoo, Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo, we breed animals and some of those animals are released into the wild or we hold them and we release them into the wild. So um, for me, the success story is is Guam rail. And the Guam rail is a small flightless bird from the island of Guam. And it was essentially tree snakes were introduced to the island they obliterated the this bird on the island because it's a ground bird and snakes can easily be on the ground and eat them. They also climb very well too. Um, at the, the government of Guam and the United States government, they took all the remaining Guam rails off the island and to some extent put them in a facility, secure facility on the island. They bred them with the help of zoos. We weren't an original zoo, but we absolutely are a zoo that came on board and we helped breed them and some of the animals we bred on grounds were released back into the wild. Why is that so cool? Is because for a little while they were considered extinct. The Guam rail was extinct in the wild. We had an extinct bird on our grounds that brand new zookeepers got to work with, help breed and help manage. And then we released them into the wild. And in part, in part because of us and other AZA zoos, we were able to uh, repropagate that bird. They are not in Guam yet. They are on neighboring islands because they have not gotten rid of the snake in on Guam. So when we talk about reintroduction, it's an entire process. It's a humongous endeavor to talk about. We'll spend another whole um, show on that. 
but we help do that. And that is conservation. We hold um, the Eastern grasshopper sparrow on our grounds, which is the most endangered bird in the United States. We hold that on grounds and we release them into the wild with the help of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife um, because th they control that program, that breeding and release program, but we hold them for that. We are doing our part by maintaining that species on ground. So we're doing conservation work, right? But in general, what do zoos do? We are breeding and maintaining populations of animals in zoos. The two biggest questions, and I would say the two biggest misconceptions I get from my guests when I talk to them, I still go out there and I still talk to them. I get, oh, you're not going into the wild and getting animals? Yeah. And the answer no. is no, we're, we're not. All the animals we have on grounds, we are breeding here. We are breeding here or in other zoos and bringing here. The exceptions for us, I can only speak for my facility, are native animals that were injured in the wild and are non-releasable. Our bald eagle, River. She was in a tree in Three Rivers State Park in northern Florida. The tree came down a lightning strike. Rangers were monitoring the site. They came out a couple days later and they found her with a broken wing. Non-releasable. They looked at it. They tried to fix it. They tried to repair it. She can't fly. She would never be able to... Um, she technically can fly a little bit, glide a little mm -hmm. bit, but she can't yeah. do your typical eagle stuff. So she's non-releasable. That's why we have her. We have owls that are non-releasable because they have injuries. We have an alligator that's missing two limbs, non-releasable. So those animals we get from the wild, but otherwise our gibbons, our otters, our capuchins, we don't get them from the wild. So how do, how do we make that happen? We have a sustainable breeding program at the zoo. And then the second biggest question, which closely related to that answer is, oh, you can't just breed whatever animals you want whenever you want? No, we cannot. Our animals, because we're an AZ accredited zoo and because we follow the rules of that organization, we have to follow what's called breeding recommendations. We have to follow the guidelines for maintaining these populations. So it's, it's really cool because this is absolutely an example of a technology. So my, my program for teaching zookeepers, it's called Zoo Animal Technology. And I get that question sometimes. How are zoo animals, how is there a technology around zoo animals? This is exactly one of those things. And it's only one of the things, but we have to use technology to manage every population that we have. It's absolutely at the, at the foundation for what we do as a zoo. The really, really cool thing is that animal husbandry, animal welfare, nutrition, all impacts the individuals. And that's really important. And there's technology in there too. But what I'm talking about impacts the entire population of animals within zoos. And that's the cool thing is what we talk about today, we, we, we would be able to have individuals in zoos and that would be fine, but they wouldn't last for very long unless we actually had these breeding programs that we talk about. And they all hinge on this one, again, this one technology called a stud book. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's the key for all of this. And it's so simple and so basic, yet crucial to everything we do. And that's what I love about it so much. No, that's a good, that's a good explanation. And, you know, it, we just had Ingrid Newkirk on from PETA and, and she said she does work with zoos, you know, on, on welfare and, and even other zoos working with the uh, Humane Society of the United States. So welfare is, is 
I know, and, and, and I've talked to you and I've seen it in action, you know, a big thing. And, and that's where zoos are, are changing uh, in a very positive direction in, in my mind. But again, when, you know, it's funny, you talk about some birds that people haven't heard about. Like, oh, okay, because we, you know, Angie and I are always talking about, you know, the Przewalski horse, the big stories, the condor, the ones that made the, made the news or in the press. But there is a lot of these other smaller species behind the scenes that zoos are saving and re-releasing. So like in the past, I don't know, two months, Angie and I have talked a lot about rewilding. That is a big movement now in conservation, how we can go into areas, you know, I had Dan Cabela on talking about, you know, reintroducing cheetahs into Mozambique and the lions. Now they're reintroducing cheetahs to India, you know, going back and recapturing these wild areas and rehabilitating. And so I, I think accredited zoos have a big, big role in that. But like you said, if you don't have the animals and you're not breeding them and holding them, under your care, you can't release them because there's no animals to release. So then they go extinct. So can we, I know we're going to get to stud books, but can we start with species survival plans? Like, what does that mean? You know, Mm because zoos talk about SSPs because stud books are part of that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So stud books are part of SSPs. So to start with SSPs, an SSP is a management structure. Technically, it's a group of individuals that manage a population. So it may be um, Asian small clawed otters, or it may be um, golden conures, or it may, so it may be harpy eagle. So one population, each population has its own SSP, its own group of individuals who help manage that population. So I don't mean necessarily the zookeepers on the ground that are taking care of the animals. I don't necessarily mean the zoos. I mean, these are people within zoos and aquariums, but they lend their expertise and their time to help manage these populations. And by manage the population, I mean, they actually do computer dating for animals, computer dating for each member of the species. Because again, everything you just talked about is amazing. Rewilding is amazing. Breeding animals to be released is amazing. If we aren't maintaining our own populations here, then we can never do that. The other thing, if we don't maintain our own populations here in zoos, then we have no animals. And guess where we have to go to get the animals? Back into the wild. And again, we aren't doing that as AZA zoos anymore. That's just not what we're doing. It's counter to what we want to do. So every population in zoos whether it's going to be rewilded or not. So there are what's called common species, right? There's on the scale, we always talk about endangered and, um, and, and potentially extinct animals and critical animals, but there are least concern animals. There, there are animals that they're sta- the populations are stable and we don't have to worry about them. We have those animals in zoos as well. We are still maintaining their populations within the zoo. So we still don't have to go out into the wild and get them because it's just not right, the right thing to do. So the SSP, the Species Survival Plan Coordinator or Coordinating Group, they actually determine which individual animal will breed with which other animal. And that's their primary function. The primary function is to maintain the genetics 
of the population and the demographics of the population. So the genetics, we all have a set of genes in, inside of us, right? And you can look at a population's genetics, the whole population. We can actually look at the entire genetics across the span of the population. The SSP is trying to maintain that genetic diversity, we call it, right? So we, what we want to do is we want to maintain as many different genes as possible. Why do we want to maintain as many genes as possible? Because there, there are study after study that shows genetic diversity is crucial for population health and maintaining population and making sure the population still continue to grow. If you don't have genetic diversity, what you have is a bottleneck or you have very few genes in a population and you end up with more problems. And it, and it can, it can, it's a big span of things. You can have um, lower immune systems. You can have less reproductive success. You can have animals that don't survive as long. All different things happen when you don't have a lot of genetic diversity. So the, the, the point of the, um, SSP coordinators and the, and the population planners is to maintain as much genetic diversity as possible. So to try to, as best as possible, spread all the genes as equally as possible around the whole population. They also maintain the demographics. So demographics is the uh, sort of the numbers, how many in the population, uh, how many males, how many females, how old are they, right? So you've got to balance those two things. It doesn't help to have a diverse population, a diverse diversity of genes, if you only have five individuals. That's not going to get you very far, right? But it also doesn't help to have 500 individuals if they're all related to each other or they all came from the same individual. So that the SSP coordinators need to manage those two factors and um, it takes... It literally is computer dating. They yeah. have computer programs to do this. And it's, I mean, I'm kind of a nerd on this stuff, but it's some, <laughs> yes. it's some of the coolest stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you just yeah, don't yeah. think about it. And yeah. again, you just don't think. So next time viewers out there, when you go to a zoo and you see an animal out there in a habitat, you got to think if there's a male and a female together, or a male and a bunch of females, the SSP coordinator decided that and made that pairing happen. It's just, it's, it's super cool. And then the zoos have to, if they're going to be part of AZA, they have to follow through on those recommendations. So it's, it's very, very cool. Yeah, no, I mean, when you're talking about, especially genetics, it's one natural, I always go back to is cheetah, which, which astonished me when we, we did them. There was a natural bottleneck at the end of the ice age. They almost went extinct. You know, there was, I don't know, a couple, a handful of them left and then they survived it barely and then were able to proliferate. But now they're endangered because they're being poached, you know, cubs taking as pets and stuff. It's, it's crazy. The other one's the Saiga. You know, we in 2014, I think it was, or 15, when Animal Planet went to go film them and 200,000 of them dropped dead of a disease because they're so inbred. You go back and look, they were hunted to less than a thousand. Now there's a million of them. I think they're doing okay. But, you know, again, that's why genetics is so important. Right. So, and so, and so you yeah. use that term inbred. I just wanted yes. to specify specifically. So, again, inbred, we, we all have this like idea of like, oh, a two headed baby, like a two headed whatever. Like inbred is um, from a genetic perspective, yes, it's still something we try to avoid. But inbreeding means you're just 
breeding the same genes over right, and over right, and over right, again right. to some extent. Usually we think about from the same individual or breeding individuals closely related. Well, in some of our managed populations, we have to breed animals that are closely related. Or like you said, in the case of cheetah, you got yeah. no choice. They're yeah. all closely related. And, yeah, and, yeah. and again, that is an extreme example of a bottlenecked effect, so not a lot of genes in the population, and it works out. It, it worked itself out, and that population is still thriving again, aside yes. from outside factors like poaching. It is still thriving, but w- we don't do that normally. That's normally no, no, not yeah, what, you, yeah. that's not yeah. what yeah. you want to try to do because, again, something comes in from the outside, disease, um, environmental shift, and your entire population can go away. So in our facilities we're trying to maintain as much genetic diversity as possible sometimes we still are inbreeding there are ways again if you want to nerd out with me sometime give me a call there are ways to to outbreed there's ways to to if if an animal is too inbred closely related to other animals there's a way to get some of those inbred genes out but again we'll we'll nerd out yeah yeah it's like I, i think the easiest way to explain this is because we've all gone through this trauma as a planet the last few years was covid how the reason you want fitness, we call it genetic fitness, is mm. COVID would strike some people down and, yep. and people died. I mean, people yep. you knew, I knew, yep. everybody on this planet was touched by it. Where others, I mean, knock on wood, I barely suffered any COVID. Yeah. And I, I, never, just, got, I never got it. Yeah, and I never again, tested positive. And, and I've and I've got I got dirty dirty kids all over the place, yeah. right? So like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm abs- surrounded by COVID be- exactly. positive people, and I never popped it because my genetics were just luckily I on the on the wheel of of immune right. genetics. And, and exactly, that's exactly it. It is yeah. we don't know that we didn't plan this. We yes. don't know what genes worked and didn't work for this one. Maybe worked for this one, maybe not for another yeah. one. So yeah, exactly, you yeah. just never know what's going to happen. So if we have as much genetic diversity in the population, and again, yeah. we are managing an entire population. If we have as much genetic diversity in the population as possible, we stand a better chance to avoid some of this stuff. And again, COVID hit um, zoo animals as well. Yeah, I just yeah. want to point that out. We yeah. we are still we still have protections for our animals because of that. And so, again, this is something that spans not just humans, but also animals as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. Talking to Jesse here, like they're very strict and, um, you know, and, and, and learning the things that you've learned through the COVID pandemic for the animals. Okay. So could we talk about a stud book then? We've been throwing this term around and for those not familiar. And I, I remember sitting, you know, because when we were doing some teaching and, and research stuff together, and I listened to your stud book talk and I was fascinated by it. You were talking about, you know, your experiences with it. Can you just explain to listeners that, that aren't in zoos or, you know, cause I know we have many that, that do work at zoos, but for those that haven't, what a stud book is and kind of how you manage it. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, do a very extremely brief history, but I'm also going to put Chris on the spot. Angie talks about how Chris likes to quiz Angie sometimes, <laughs> and she doesn't. She doesn't always remember <laughs> stuff. And uh, so I'm going to put Chris on the spot. All right. The first stud book was 1791. All right. What species was the first stud book for? Oh. And I'm asking you because you should know. Okay, elephant. There we go. <laughs> that should be easy, no, right? No. Okay, okay. Even, hold on. No, hold on, not no. elephant. G- give me geographics. What, what you, zoo? Sh- you of all people. Horses? 
Oh, horses. horses. Duh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, duh. Of horses. Course, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. the original stud book, and that term stud generally referred to a male, and they wanted to track the male lineages of race horses, right? Yep. To yep, see yep. which horses won the most races. Yes. So, how do we breed this stud more frequently? And, right, you know, right. yada, yada, yada. So, again, so it's really interesting because this first stud book, the idea was actually to try to breed more of a certain genetic line, right? Fast, fast racehorses. And that's and 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 the good thing is we learned how to track animals and what data was important and that sort of thing. Um, and there were, of course, lots of different problems with it if you go back to those original stud books. But what we learned is there's some really important things that we can do. But what, how we, we use stud books now, and the race industry actually still uses them, and there's, you know... If you watch racehorses at all, like there's lines and successions and they still are, it's very important. We use it completely different because again, we are not trying to hone in on one particular set of genetics. We are trying to diversify our genetics. I already talked about that, but that's the point of our stud books. So those are original star, uh, stud books. Um, but so again, the point of the stud book is to keep track of the data that we need in order to manage a sustainable population. And again, we're managing that sustainable population with genetics and demographics. The super cool thing is there's actually only five pieces of information that we need uh, from an individual to help manage an entire population. Should I quiz you on this one or should I just go? Oh, <laughs> male or female? How about that? <laughs> male, female, right. Gender. You got to know. So we're talking one yeah. individual and we need yeah. this individual in the population. We got to know whether it's a male or a female. Yeah. Yeah. Lineage. I mean, you got to know. Lineage, right? I broke yeah. lineage into two factors because okay. there's two parts of lineage. What are those yeah. two parts? Well, paternal and maternal, right? Paternal, maternal, right? right. Sire and dam. So those okay. are that's the terminology we use. Sire is the male, dam is the female. Good job. Yeah. Two other things that well, really how, we need. How many? How well they're represented in the population, right? Or Ooh. offspring produced? Mm -hmm. So you're gonna yeah. get that from the lineage. Paternal. Okay. Okay. You're gonna get right. that paternal, maternal. Age. I don't know. Age. Age comes from their their date of birth. <laughs> date yep. of birth. Date right. of birth. Right. So you need to know the day yeah. they were born. And the last thing oh, is God, I got like. Four you have four to five. The last thing is like, can they breed? <laughs> uh, you don't figure that out till later on. So you put uh, them with somebody. Uh, and then some of this is, location. Hey, I did it. I remember yeah, this was like 10 it. years ago. Yeah, when I that's I amazing. I didn't you remember. Got it. Those are the five. Things. So the five things every stud book should have about every single individual at the bare minimum what the gender is, what the birth date is, what the male was, that there was the sire, what the female was, the dam, and where they were actually. And I say location, technically you want to know where they were born, but then you actually want to know every one of their locations. Then there's other information that you could add that would be great, for instance, when this animal passes away, when they died, so that they're not in the population anymore, you don't count them, and then you don't try to breed them. There's other things that you could use to help you manage this individual and this individual for breeding. Like you said, can they breed or not? That's great information to put in a stud book as well that goes in notes, but not the, the fundamental information. So that's what I love so much about this. Again, the point of this is to manage an entire population. I can manage an entire population just with five data points from every individual within that population. And I can help and I can manage the, the demographics and the genetics for the entire population it's just so super cool. Like that's what I just love about this is 
you know, sometimes you think like, how does this happen? Like, how could you possibly manage a whole population? Like, how do you talk to other zoos? How do you do all this stuff? It's if you break it down, it's fundamentals It's actually super, super easy. So again, you need that information for every individual within that one population. So you talked about my particular history, my particular history with stud books. I was what's called a stud book keeper. So that's the person that runs the stud book, that oversees the stud book, that manages all of that information. I was a stud book keeper for Plains Zebra. So that is your sort of quote unquote common zebra. Uh, Equus buscelli uh, was my species. I actually technically had four um, subspecies. And, and I kind of hesitate on this because essentially this is part of the problem is the genetics get a little bit weird, a little bit squirrely. When you start dealing with subspecies of species, they start interbreeding or they can interbreed. And when animals come into zoos and you try to track their heritage, you may not know which particular subspecies they actually are. So in my stud book, I technically managed two or three subspecies, sometimes four, it just depended. But a lot of that was based on um, what the animals look like, right? So I would be told, oh, this is a Damara zebra, antiquatorum, but only because of the way this trait, this, this, the, it's, its striping look like, you know? So it gets a little bit, it can get tricky and it can get a little bit fuzzy, but again, without getting into the weeds, I managed the zebra stud book. And when I last published it right around 2011, um, <clears throat> that's about the last time that I worked with this stud book. It was a huge undertaking. It was a lot of fun. I, th the cool part about it was getting to learn this, this population, getting to know this population. I was also tasked, every stud book keeper is tasked with being the species champion and being the repository for all the information. So I would have to, keep track of all the published articles on Zebra. I would have to um, keep track of any new new studies that were happening. Um, but I got to meet all these different people from all these different places that housed um, Zebra. Sometimes I just met them over email. You know, I just exchanged emails with them. But I exchanged enough email where I knew them. And then sometimes when I met them, I was like, hey, it's you. And we already had a relationship. It was actually super cool. Again, this is one of those things that if you want to get involved in animal conservation, there's lots of different ways to do it. You know, stud bookkeeping for me, I, I, I picked up Atlanta. I, it was 2005 maybe. And, um, I did it because I wanted to get more involved in the conservation work. I want to get more involved in the industry, the zoo industry itself. And I had to go through stud book training. So I had to go to, uh, classes. I had to do, you're required to do at least one. I did uh, two different classes. Um, I used uh, a couple different types of software to keep track of this stuff. And I spoke to many people. So the size of my population after I left, um, it was about 448 individual animals in the population, uh, in, in the common zebra, um, plain zebra when I left it. And so, um, <clears throat> that was, um, I can't remember how many institutions, but that was probably 120 institutions or something like wow. that. So yeah, not every yeah. AZA zoo or not every AZA you know, aquarium keeps zebra, but a ton of them do, right? And some keep other species of zebra. Um, and so 
I got to communicate with all of those different institutions and all the different people there to keep track of the these individuals. So what I would do is every year or so, I would send an email out that would say, hey, update me on your population. What's going on with plain zebra at your facility? So they would send me any births they had, any deaths they had, any transfers. So did they transfer animals out? Did they transfer animals in? And then what I would do is I would compile all of that information. So every institution has its own records at their own facility, right? But I need to manage the whole population. So I need to gather all of that data, all those records from all of those individual institutions into one individual stud book, one complete stud book to know what's actually happening with this population, how big, how small, growing, shrinking, what's going on with it. Nowadays, I will say the technology is better the, the data is shared better, better, so everybody's individual records can be easily shared amongst each other. Um, at this time, I had to request these data be sent to me, the, the records be sent to me. So it, it, the technology is getting better, making it easier, but there's still the need for a stud bookkeeper to manage all that stuff and to kind of um, track down discrepancies. So then my job was to do that, track down discrepancies. If you say, I sent a zebra to San Antonio... San Antonio should send me a record saying, yeah, we received the zebra from so-and-so. Sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they would. Um, when I told you those five pieces of information we needed yeah, for yeah. every individual, I would literally get reports from zoos. There was one zoo in particular. I won't say who they were because <laughs> I actually work with them closely. And I would get from them, we have 10 new zebra. Okay. That's it. <laughs> Just that. That's it. What are their genders? Yeah. What's their, who's their, they generally would know the sire. They'd know the male. They'd know the one male that was in there. Like, who's the damn? Yeah, yeah. They'd be like, I don't know. Like, look for a big striped horse and (laughs) look for a small striped horse right next to it. And that'll give you a little clue as to who's who. Right. But different people manage their populations differently. And so I wouldn't get all that information. I'd have to call them, try to get that. Because if I don't know who the dam and the sire are, I don't know the genetic heritage of this animal and I can't track back their lineage. So when I go to pair this one individual with somebody else, they might be closely related if I right, don't right. know who they're related. So it's all super important. So it was an amazing opportunity to um, learn about this animal, learn about the science behind it. Physically, um, it's, if you like puzzles, is a good one for you because you have to track down like all of these missing pieces, you would, you would, again, you'd be blown out of the water at which information was missing from which institution. You know, I'd have like, okay, and we transferred this animal to San Antonio. San Antonio wouldn't even have the animal anymore. What happened to this animal? Oh yeah, we transferred it. Who'd you transfer it to? I don't know. So we yeah. sent somebody. What? Who? You know, yeah, so, yeah. and not to pick on San Antonio, that's not accurate, but I'm just yeah. giving you an example. Yeah. So um, yeah, it would be, it was, an interesting, interesting time, and, and but really enlightening for me as a way to get involved, hands on in again managing the populations we had and how they how the, how important they are. Um, yeah, yeah. The interesting thing for my population, we talked about breeding, we talked about maintaining a population, we talked about potential release. The job, my job as a stud bookkeeper, was actually to, which is different than a lot of other uh, population managers. My job was to decrease my population. So I was actually trying to drive down the number of um, plain zebra within zoos. 448, I had a um, target population. So again, another discussion for another time. I work with other population managers and we come up with overall population plans called regional population plans. 
my job is to drive the number. My job was to drive the number down of, of plain zebra. Why? Because they are common in the wild. They aren't threatened. They're not endangered. But what is threatened and endangered are grevies. Grevies, yeah, yeah. Right? And so what I would try to do is decrease the size of the plain zebra population and fill those spots with grevies. I'm not the grevy stud bookkeeper, but what I could do is I would refer them to the grevy stud bookkeeper. Also the Hartman's zebra. I would try to refer them to the Hartman zebra. So all these species have different husbandry needs, different, completely different discussion for a different time, but they do have a different husbandry needs. So it's my job to try to figure out what exactly the, the environment is like at your zoo with, with common zebra. Could we take them out of there, put in Hartman's or put in Grevy's? And so it was really an interesting um, trick for me to, to try to do some of that because, again common zebra are common. They're easy to manage. You actually have them all over the United States, not just in zoos, but on private land right. down here in Florida. Seen I get, it. <laughs> yeah. I, yep. You've seen yep. it. I get the calls like, oh, yes, my neighbor has zebra. Oh, so-and-so, you know, like it happens all the time. And so then those animals can easily be transferred into the zoo population. And so there's kind of like lots of different things that I would have to try to manage. But it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of uh, it was a lot of work, it was a lot of time, and it is completely voluntary. So as a stud bookkeeper, you do have to be a paid employee of an AZA accredited zoo to do a regional, what we call regional stud book, a North American stud book. Um, so I have to be employed by an AZA zoo, but I wasn't paid for it. It was volunteer time. My bosses had to give me um, the time to do that, and they do because, um, again, they believe in supporting stud books and supporting populations. But yeah, it was it was really really um, an interesting interesting time. No, yeah, no, it is it is interesting to, to, to think about it, and you know these animals at zoos aren't just you know AZA accredited zoos or wherever you are in the world an, an accredited zoo. We have a different accrediting organization down here in my corner of the world. I know Europe has a, a separate one for their zoos, so these animals are managed very uh, similarly, right? Similarly, now. My question is, because the work I was doing, we just covered Asian elephants and I didn't talk a lot about the research I was doing, but, you know, shipping an elephant to breed at a facility is, 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 is it's, uh, there's so much that goes into it, not just welfare concerns about taking an elephant away from, you know, it's, it's herd to go breed, you know, say from San Diego to New York or whatever. It was like, okay, if we can freeze these gametes, it can, you know, we don't have to ship a bull elephant across the country. You know, that was kind of a, the goal uh, of the research we were doing. But can we talk about the process of other animals that, that you do move, you know, in between uh, organizations and institutions? So like your cats who we are talking about carnivores or, because I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, you're not going to breed a Siberian tiger with a Sumatran tiger, right? Right. Nope. So if I have a Sumatran tiger whose genetics are needed mm -hmm. across the country, can you talk about that process, that decision-making process, how that, that works between zoos? Right. So the so the first thing, that the, again, the stud book is the basis for all of it. We have all the data. We know who's related to who. And then what we want to do is maintain the genetic diversity. So if there are animals who's, who have genes that are not represented in the population that don't have a lot of offspring – then we would want to breed those animals first. And so that's where we, we start. Um, and again, by we, 
I mean, again, individual zoos have to do the breeding, but we as the population managers um, help guide those decisions. And again, as a stud bookkeeper, I'm not actually doing the decision making on this. I'm helping to inform population managers and hopefully um, you get a shot to talk to an actual population manager. Again, my role is crucial. I love my role, but I wasn't a population manager. There's other people that are far more knowledgeable about these genetic makeups and these genetic pairings than I am. So anyways, that's what they would do is they would make the pairings as best as possible. That's where you start. These are the best pairings genetically. But then you look, right? And you're like, okay, so this is the best pairing genetically. And it is, uh, again, we, we can go to the extreme and say it's an elephant, right? Well, we have one of the, 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 the female is in um, New York and the male is in Seattle, right? Like as far away as we can get in the United States. At some point, then, then you say, well, what's the next best pairing? Well, the female's in New York and the, and the male's in Connecticut, right? So if, if maybe the ideal is far away from each other, but the next best is closer, you may make that decision based on those outside factors. Um, this is also, and obviously the elephants are their own specific um, discussion for this sort of stuff. Um, but you, let, let's say giraffe, for instance, also a huge animal, also a big animal, difficult to move, actually really difficult to move as an adult. You really have to move them as teenagers. So again, the, the cool thing is all of this is based on data that we have immediately when the animal's born. So the super cool thing is you can move animals early on without having to wait like 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 you said, like do you have to get genetic samples? Do you have to like try to breed them for like no, you can move them honestly before giraffe get too tall. Yeah. And so you could make those decisions, especially with giraffe, like how far are you going to actually move these animals? The genetics are important, but sometimes the individual welfare is important. You might also, this is where there's data that's in the stud book and data that's crucial for the stud book. I talked about crucial data, other data in the stud book. Is this a male that's very aggressive? And do you have a female that's very submissive? And so is that going to be a good pairing or vice versa? Sometimes you have a dominant female and a subordinate male, is that going to work? You need to know the individual histories of the individuals and of the species to know how they might get along well. Here's a really interesting one. Oh, another quiz for you. Uh, (laughs) White rhino. Yeah. Okay. White rhino. How do they group up? What, what is What does a normal, typical white rhino group look like? In... In the wild or in sure, zoos? Let's go wild. In the wild, I mean, they're pretty small, very small social groups, right? If small social, if, if or even isolated, they don't really group up. Mm-hmm. I just, eh, I mean, you got, you got herds; they they will herd up, not huge yeah, herds. Yeah, as opposed to the black rhino, which are absolutely individuals. Right? Yeah, so black rhinos yeah. are individual, solitary. So to breed one male, one female. Right, right, and yeah. so zoos. For a long time, one male, one female, black rhino, boom, breeding. White rhinos, one male, one female, boom, no breeding. Yeah. Why? Because yeah. they actually exist in herds. And so you need one male and multiple females. Worked, worked, worked some places, worked, kind of worked better. Then they started figuring out it still wasn't working great. 
They a couple actually males. discovered they needed two males. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. you need a male nearby, not actually yeah. in the herd, because then you actually have fighting. Yeah. You don't want to deal with that. But if you had one male, a group of females, and one other male, sometimes called a teaser male, at a nearby location, they would breed. Yeah. So this is some of the stuff that like rubber meets the road of population management isn't just numbers in a stud book. As much as I love those numbers in a stud book and as much as I love to manage it, it is actual animals, husbandry, natural history, individual history, all of that stuff. And that's why this is, I love to say, the art and the science. The science is a stud book. Technology is a stud book. The art is the populations and the individuals and the natural history. And how do you put them all together to make a situation where animals will actually breed and reproduce. So again, the population manager has to work with all of the individuals, all the, um, excuse me, institutions in order to get those breeding recommendations right. They're called breeding recommendations. Yeah. And what yeah. we do is we say, we recommend your animal breeds or your animal does not breed. Simple as that. Breed, no breed. That's the two decisions that can be made. Technically, there's a third, which is transfer. So it could be breed so transfer to another organization to be bred or even transfer to another organization to not breed to be a, a companion to prepare for later breeding right so we may breed this animal later on down the line and give you an opportunity later on and again i've got a ton of stories of this so when i um when i got to santa fe college teaching zoo our gibbon our male gibbon eddie was the most valuable animal within the gibbon population what do I mean by that? I don't mean money. I mean, he had the most genes that were underrepresented within the population. So he needed to breed. So we were given a female um, to breed. And we had the, those two together for a while and um, actually took a long time. And they finally bred. And since then, they have bred five times and have yeah. had yeah. an offspring that we've already sent around the country. And we have some some still in the um in our habitat. We now have a do not breed, right? Yeah. So he's bred enough that he has dispersed his genes through the population. So now we're getting a do not breed. So when people look at that habitat, they're like, oh, you got so many babies. That's great. You get to breed them as, as much as you want. Like, no, we are now on a do not breed. She is under birth control. And so we have to listen to what the AZA says, right? So we had, here's, here's the other part of a breeding population is we had squirrel monkeys for years. They all passed away. We got in a new group of squirrel monkeys, young females, and then we held them for a little while. SSP called us up and said, hey, we need these females to go someplace else. We're going to give you some other animals, but they're going to be older. So absolutely, that's what happened. We got two older individuals that we held. They were post-reproductive. They weren't going to breed. Our job, though, is as a facility is to hold them because Every animal within our population deserves care until the end yeah. of their life. And that's yeah, what we yeah, did. Yeah. We took care yeah. of them. They they passed away as happens. And so once they passed away, we got into younger animals to breed. And then they have bred. And now we have a baby squirrel monkey. And so that's how it works. We, we good institutions, are doing what the SSP coordinators and what the stud book keepers are asking happen the population managers asking to happen and they are participating however they can and that's what i believe in for population management i am going to participate 
with every population that I have, because that's why I have them. I'm going to hold. If you say hold, I'm going to transfer. I'm going to breed. Again, I have my own plans and I have my own restrictions as far as a facility goes, right? I, my habitats are only so big. I can only hold so many animals. So I'm going to be restricted by that. So I'm going to tell um, population managers that. But if they work within the constraints that I have at my facility, I, I'm going to I'm going to work with them. So yeah, it's a great um, partnership. And logistically, it is it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time logistically to do all this stuff. A lot of coordination. But th- again, this is and this is all volunteer. And this is what I love about this industry. We're doing all this stuff simply because we care about the populations and we know it's best for the populations to manage them in a responsible way. Yeah. And I mean, everybody I've, I've met that works in zoos is just passionate about animals and wildlife and conservation. And this is why they want to do it. I mean, we have tons of people emailing us, how do I get involved? Or they're interested in a career working in zoos, or they work at, they work at very uh, great sanctuaries, uh, you know, whether they're tiger sanctuaries or big cats, the elephant sanctuary. I mean, I've talked to, to, to so many different people uh, around the world that love wildlife. And I think this is a very eye-opening for a lot of people that aren't in the industry that, wow, I didn't know that was going on behind the scenes. And I, I wrote down, I think a, a future episode to bring you back, you know, maybe in a few months or, or early next year, we we'll talk about like welfare about the animals in zoo. Cause I know that's a big concern and I know you're not afraid to address it. And the AZA is not afraid to address it, but you know, as we progress, cause I've seen the change in the last 15 years working with you, uh, you know, talking to a, a lot of friends in the, in the industry, how that has, you, you've always had welfare as a concern, but it's really a big part of it today too is, um, you know, ensuring these animals are cared for and, you know, it's not just genetics. It is the animal's health, the animal's mental state, the five domains. I mean, you, you taught me that stuff way back in the day, you know, (laughs) the five domains of animal care. So, um, something we can do. And just before we wrap up, John, the one thing that, like I said, I, I, I said, you wouldn't breed Siberian tigers with Sumatran but that does happen on roadside zoos or some of these other places that Netflix made famous. And, you know, I won't mention these, these places, um, but that happens a lot. Right. And so those animals, when you see those, they are not viable, right? Cause they'll never contribute to animals being re rewild. Right. Right. And so um, there's a lot of breeding that happens at these non accredited facilities. And again, that's, that's the problem. What you'll see is you see, as you said, breeding between sort of like subspecies or something like that, you do see a lot of that inbreeding we talked about, right? So um, we we talked about at the beginning, like it's not the worst thing in the world, but essentially these places are just breeding to sometimes get babies, right? Babies, everybody loves baby animals. Everybody, you know, I talked about baby animals a second ago. They are great, but we are doing them to maintain populations, roadside zoos, are breeding them just to make money on them. And how do you know they're making money on them? If you're taking a picture with a baby animal, somebody is making money on that. What happens to that baby animal when it's too big to take a picture with? That's what you should be asking. What happens? Does that facility not have any more baby animals for you to take picture and no more money? No, they're making more baby animals. 
What do they do with those babies when they're too old to have pictures taken? Are they taking care of them? Are they taking care of them throughout their entire life? So these are questions that you should be asking. AZA zoos are not doing that. They are breeding to maintain the population. That is why they're doing it. And they're doing it under strict guidelines from population managers and stud bookkeepers. So that is a humongous um, distinction and something you should think about when you see baby animals and you should see how are they managed. The other thing that happens, you see um, individuals, people have pets, have exotic animals as pets, right? And then a lot of times what you'll see is you'll see, well, I have this animal as a pet. I can't handle them anymore. I'll just give them to a zoo. I'll give yeah. them to a zoo in order to <laughs> no. for them to take. No. So again, we manage our entire populations based on genetic. If the animal was in your your house, we don't know where that animal comes from. We don't know the genes on that animal. So that if we try to breed it with another animal, it may be closely related. And then we won't know because we have no lineage. That's the smallest of problems. The large problem is generally if the animal has been your pet, it will not act like a normal animal. So a primate won't act like a normal primate. It'll act like a human. And then it won't be able to breed with um, the other animals in our population. So there's lots of problems when you see baby animals in non-accredited facilities. So you guys are smart. You know, all the viewers here, you guys are smart. So I want you to think about that when you see that sort of stuff. You should ask. You should be inquisitive. Like, huh, what's happening with this baby? What's going to happen with this baby? Where did this baby come from? Don't be afraid to ask those questions if you're seeing pictures being taken. And again, any accredited facility will tell you you know, straight up sort of what, what's happening there. Any non-accredited facility will probably be dodgy about what is going to happen with that animal after the picture taking is is over so yeah definitely yeah. think about that because again smart audience we love you guys and we love that you guys are doing on a daily basis you guys are helping us and helping the animal world and so you can continue to do that when you visit um facilities and that's where like some of these these very well-run sanctuaries are in existence because they were rescuing these animals that the zoos couldn't take. You can't take more tigers. And like going back to that episode when we did tigers, there's more tigers uh, under human care, not in zoos than there are in the wild as personal pets or at these sanctuaries. So yeah, exotic, exotic animals should not be kept as pets. Angie and I talk about that week in week out and you know, yeah, even talking about the Asian elephants and the <laughs> the, the tourism in, in Asia. Yeah. I mean, it's such a oh, it's such a, a big issue. But we'll keep we'll keep uh, investigating and, and bringing guests on like yourself that uh, can talk about that. But thanks, John. We're at an hour. I, I, that's a good talk. You and I mm-hmm. could talk for about five. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yep. <laughs> we'll, I, um, I, I could do this lecture all day long. <laughs> so absolutely, yeah. Uh, no, I, I I loved. It. I had a great time. Yeah. Just hopefully, I just. Everybody learned a little bit and learned a little bit about like, oh, that's interesting about what is actually happening behind the scenes. And that's what we love to do. I love to pull back the curtain and let you know, because these are not um, trade secrets. These are not, Mm -mm, you mm -mm. know, hidden industry secrets. I'm, we are happy to talk about this whenever we can. So certainly if anybody has questions, feel free to obviously reach out and, and chat. Yeah, absolutely. Give us, you know, give us some feedback. You can always reach out to us, email, social media, Instagram or Facebook or Facebook group. Let us know what you think, you know, and if you want to learn more or there's specific issues you have, let us know. 
and you know obviously we're not afraid to to talk about it and and interview the experts that can uh, bring light to this but thank you john and thank you for bringing angie to florida so many years ago and started this journey for myself you know you guys are family and you know it's it's great that even though i'm on the other side of the world we've kept uh, close contact and once travel opens back up in the next couple of years, I'll be back to Florida to see oh, you yeah. guys. But yeah, yeah, no, we'll, get you we'll, down we'll, here. Yeah, we'll make a date of it. We'll, yeah, we'll yeah, yeah. travel. Hey, and I appreciate yeah. you guys for everything that you do. Again, I talked about all of this stuff being volunteer. Everything these guys are doing is, you know, again, this comes from the their the love of, out of their hearts. They're doing this, you know, basically yeah. as volunteers, and they they love it to spread the joy of animals and 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 animals and. Um, habitats conservation ecology they are spreading the word so you can do your part to spread it as well and uh i'm always glad to be on board here and hey chris good job on the quizzes today i'll tell you yeah thanks (laughs) yeah go tell angie ah you nailed it (laughs) (laughs) all right buddy take care all right you too take care